0: So in my lifetime, I have seen a change in the religious landscape of the U.S. of our country, and I'm, I'm sure others can echo that. Um, I'd say even really, especially since my years in high school, the 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 change has been happening very slowly, but the numbers are now kind of coming out, and and it's quite clear that. In the last few years, a shift changed that America is actually no longer a majority of Christians, a majority Christian country. So there's a book I've been um, looking at by Ryan Burge called The Nuns, and I also have some charts, so I want to put that first one on the screen. And you could see, I know you probably can't read the numbers from your seat, but this gives you a picture if you could just sort of So this is about church membership. And so really through, so are you a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque? You'd have about 70% of Americans be yes to to one of those until the last couple years, 2018. Now that's hit 50%. So over half are not a member of a church, um, synagogue, or a mosque, a religious organization. And then... So where do people go? Like, what, what's, you know, if, if there's been a decline in that, what has grown in its place? And so, so Ryan Burge's book is called The Nuns. And the, the talk about is the rise of the nuns. And nuns mean those who, when you ask, what is your affiliation or your religion or whatever, they'll say no religious affiliation. You know, not, none of the things describe them. So they have no religious... And if you look on the chart, you may be able to see the red line. That is the the nuns, where they were 5% in 1972. Now it's at 23%. And according to this poll, Catholic, evangelical, and no affiliation are equal at about 23% of the country. That's a pretty big change. And a lot of the stuff we're experiencing in our culture... Has to do with this shift in attitudes towards religion and, and stuff. So, I, I I always try to help. I want to often speak to to younger people because this seems normal to them, you know, of the younger generation. Because this is the way it's always been, and I want to help them understand how 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 much of a shift this is for maybe older folks who grew up and it was kind of expected. Everyone would be a part of a church or something. And to see this change It's been unsettling It leads to conflicts Within the culture um, There's all kinds of debates About what role religion should play And in You know, and everything And a lot of uncertainty Will this continue? Will, will is this the, the, the future? I share this Not because I really want to talk about Any great plan to fix this You know, I believe God has to, to act But as we approach our our passage, and and really this whole series we're going to do, there is a religious change happening amongst the people of Israel. And this was over a 30, 40, 50 year time frame. This change is happening a lot more quickly. And they're going through a very rapid religious change introduced by one of their new kings. And so I'm excited about the series. It's, It's going to be mostly in the book of 1 Kings, but we're focused on one particular prophet, Elijah, and we're going to see how he played a role, and hopefully over the summer we'll learn, spring and summer we'll learn things that we get from his life. But the core question is this, what will God do when his people, his chosen people of Israel, when they go astray and begin to worship The Canaanite gods, the gods of the Canaanites surrounding them. And so that's the question that, you know, how will God respond to this? So our our passage began in 1 Corinthians 16, and it talks about a new king of Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, um, began to reign over Israel. By the way, as Pat was reading, I realized, like, we're... When it comes to pronouncing Hebrew names, we're always just guessing. So if I pronounce it differently than him, he may be right, I may be wrong, I don't know. But, um, so Omri was actually the start of a new dynasty in Israel. And his name shows up on different archaeological finds, and it seems to be actually at the, one of the peak of Israel's strength and power. And then, and he sought to make uh, Israel established. And so he actually set up a new capital city in Samaria. And now he's been there long enough. And he's now handing off to his son Ahab. So that's kind of the start of the situation. Now you notice that verse mentioned not just Ahab, but also the king of Judah, Asa. What, what's going on there? Well, About 70, 50, 70 years before this, Israel had become divided. The 12 tribes of Israel had fought a civil war. Um, 12 tribes, they divided between what they end up calling Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so back in King King David's time, they were united, the 12 tribes, into one nation. Now they've split in half. And they each have separate kings, Israel in the north has more of the tribes and they have they're probably stronger um, militarily. Judah, the southern one, they got the capital city of Jerusalem, which means they also have the temple and all the temple worship and that created a problem for the Israel people in Israel because can you really send your people to go worship down in effectively another country? What would happen if you did that? And so when the situation first arose, they, the king at the time was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam said, you know, what will we do? If I send my people down, they'll start to be loyal to this kingdom of Judah instead of me. And so what he did instead is he set up his own places of worship. Two different temples. Um, It says the king made two golden calves. They had to have objects of worship. So Jeroboam created two different golden calf idols and set them up in two places of worship so that his people could have a more convenient place of worship. They, They didn't worship in synagogues at that point. They only used temples. And so he said, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now, from a human perspective, this makes total sense, right? Of course, you would have your own worship places and not go to a, a different country to do that. But it broke God's laws. God had set up the, the temple as the place where his presence existed. Now, and also there's that commandment of do not make an image of me. So this is the sins of Jeroboam that it's going to mention later in the passage. And so this is the the problem they had and the way he tried to deal with it. Now note one thing, though. Who are they worshiping? They're still worshiping the Lord, right? The God who brought you out of Egypt. They're still, in their minds, they're still aiming their worship at the right God, at the Lord, at Yahweh, they're just doing it wrong, right? They're, they're not doing it the right way. Now back to Ahab, okay? So now we have a new king. Ahab is going to continue in Jeroboam's policy. It says Ahab is more evil than all who are before him. And it says, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. In other words, he would continue Jeroboam's policy of having these idols and worshiping at these these temples other than Jerusalem. And, and it was a structural issue, issue. He almost couldn't do otherwise. But Ahab would actually add on and then commit a further transgression of God's um, commands and that he began to introduce the worship of Baal to his people. So he, excuse me, he erected a separate altar for Baal. Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites. And um, Asherah, which is one of the main goddesses of the Canaanites. So he began to do that within Israel. And so this was normal. For most nations. If you would go to the surrounding nations, they would have their gods, but they would also have temples for other gods. If you would look at ancient Rome, they loved to do this in Greece. They would have their own particular gods and then they would add on other ones. Talked about in Athens, how they even had a temple to an unknown god. That was normal, but for Israel, it was a problem. Um, what Ahab was considered was, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this is, you know, it talks about e, Ahab being wicked and evil. His people wouldn't have thought of him as this wicked, evil king that's, you know, that's torturing babies or anything like that. Like, we can get, using those words, we get this wrong picture, but, but he was moving the people of Israel away from this covenant they had with God. God's relationship to Israel was like, unlike any other. And see, God had especially chosen Israel to be his people. They were the descendants of Abraham. Long before God had made a covenant with Abraham, and he said to his descendants, I will make your descendants into a people, and they will be my special chosen people. And through them, God would 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 do great things. And it's Ultimately, Jesus comes from this, this, this same covenant promise. And so by, but the deal was, you know, God, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. God would be their protector. God would be the, the one that would bless them and that they would learn to follow him and his ways. But the deal was they had to worship him exclusively. In making this covenant, with back in the time of Moses, God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So it would be a special relationship unlike any other in the ancient world that God would have with the Israelites. He said that they would be a kingdom of priests, that all the nations would ultimately get to know God through the, the people of Israel. Israel. But it required that they stay faithful and worship him alone. And so what what Ahab was doing in in introducing the worship of Baal was breaking this covenant. And it was provoking the Lord to anger. That this this was against what God was planning. And why did he do it? He did it all for love maybe. Who knows? Um, it says he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Beth Baal. Um, notice the word Baal in his name, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. He married a Phoenician princess. Phoenicia was on the coast of that area. Tyre and Sidon were its two main cities. Um, but the, the Phoenicians were part of the larger group of Canaanites. The Canaanites were all around that land. The Canaanites had spread out. The Carthaginians, whom the Romans fought, they were they were also Canaanites. And they practiced this their religion, especially with Baal being at the, the central point. And so um Ahab marries Jezebel and I don't know if it was completely her idea to bring in this this other worship or if Ahab was trying to do it to make his you know to make a good partnership. Likely the marriage had to do with as much of treaties. And, and partnering with. You know making alliances. With the Phoenicians. Because they were pretty powerful as well. And, and so there's all probably motivations for Ahab. But Jezebel will play a big part in the story. Because she will, she will zealously. Bring in. This, this, um, this new religion. Into Israel. She will be the one that's kind of pushing it going forward. And all in all, it says the Lord was provoked to anger. God could not let this stand. He had to do something. He was going to lose his people to, to, to this other religion. And so what will God do? What steps will God take? in order to prevent this, to, to bring his people back? That is the question. So what will God do is his chosen people turn away from him and begin to worship other gods. Well, the main answer is simple. God will send a prophet. And so Elijah shows up. And this will be the battle of Elijah's life. How to, how to say to the, the fellow Israelites, don't go this direction, Stop beware you're heading in a bad direction. And so it says Elijah the Tishbite. So he's from a little town in Tishba which is to the the east um, across the Jordan River, but he comes to Ahab the king and said as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand there should be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So I'm sure there was more said about why and and the events that were taking place and you know, I'm sure Elijah spelled out the, the false worship of Baal being the reason. We're just kind of given the concluding statement is that God will withhold rain from the people of Israel. God will do something that will affect their prosperity, that will affect their, um, th- how they're doing. Um, by the way, I realized I skipped something. I skipped that one verse. Can we go back backwards? before I get there, is they give us one little extra verse. And it took me a while to think about, like, how does this play into it? It talks about Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho, meaning he rebuilt the walls of Jericho. When Israel had first gone on into the land, Jericho was one of the first major cities they had to defeat, and the walls came tumbling down. When they did that, Joshua, the, the commander, said, You know these walls should never be rebuilt. Whoever rebuilds them, it'll be at the cost of their firstborn and their lastborn son, kind of as a curse. Well, it mentions here that this this is the time frame when Jericho is rebuilt, and it so it does take place that his two sons die. Whether it's by plague or you know we're not really told why they end up dying. But what does this show? it shows that Israel is is probably financially or militarily, economically prosperous. Things are going well. They're expanding. They're rebuilding cities. And and secular historians will point to this time as Israel was prospering. And not only are they doing that, but they're also ignoring their history. They're, They're not paying attention to the word of God. Doesn't it seem like when things are going well, we, it's, it's easy to sort of leave that God stuff behind, right? You know, life's going well, God bless me, and then, but you kind of go your own way. We see that their, their success, their prosperity, is part of why they don't seem all that intent upon staying true to God. They don't feel the need for God that they did when things were tough and it was a challenge. So Elijah comes and it says, what is God going to do? He's going to withhold rain. Now, is God just angry and punishing his people? Not quite. There's a theological reason for this. Baal was a storm god. In other words, people prayed to Baal for rain, Right? And God is going to demonstrate that it is not Baal who decides whether it's going to reign in Israel or not. It is the Lord and the Lord only. God is going to give them a clear demonstration that he is the one in charge and not this other God. And so I wonder how Ahab received this. Like when he first heard it, he's like, oh, yeah, 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 that prophet again. You know, probably did not think a whole lot of it. You know, he doesn't seem to respond in any way against Elijah at that point. Why? Because, well, the crops are still growing. But over time, as no rain came, certainly this would, this would make Elijah not very popular. So, so God has to do something. God then sends word to, to Elijah, depart from here. Go eastward and hide by the brook of Cherith. Now, this is actually back closer to Elijah's home territory of Tishbe. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. So it's a good ways away from Samaria, the capital. And But even there, Elijah doesn't go to his hometown. He goes out into the desert wilderness where there's a little brook. And by there, um, he could be alone. He could be away from people. He could be hidden so that when... Ahab does go looking for Elijah. No one knows where he's at at this point, not even his, his, his friends. And so God sends um, Elijah into the wilderness so that when things start to get tougher and tougher, um, he's hidden. And then it says, um, so he lived bad, but how would God provide for his prophet? And I love this, this picture. It says, ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the book, brook. I mean, can you imagine this? Like, I, do you guys, does anyone go camping? Now, when I say camping, I don't mean like this, this luxurious cabin by a, a lake. I know that that's how, you know, in upstate New York we talk about. I mean like in a tent or, you know, somewhere where you're out in the wilderness and your only way to cook food is over a fire. Um, we, we did some camping as I grew up. Um, we'd do hot dogs, of course. So, you know, what do you eat when you're camping? Well, hot dogs or something like that. We also had one other thing, and I don't even know if, it's, if this is uh, an appropriate term anymore. We called them hobo pies. But it's, it's these pie irons that you would use, and you'd you'd two pieces of bread, and then you'd put stuff in between. we make basically like pizza pockets, inside them. And so you put them in the metal thing, you put them over the fire. Like, I loved cooking over the fire and all all that stuff and, you know, having that, that thing. But so, but imagine like God providing dinner this way, you know, bird after bird, you know, a whole flock of them and once they just with their beaks dropping food on a rock somewhere and like, well, there's dinner today. You know, did they bring the same kind of meat? You know, did it vary from day to day? And and then you got to ask, where did they get it? You know, I would love to think that they were bringing it from Ahab's dinner table. You know, I think that would be fun. Um, now there was a Super Bowl commercial a while back, and and it featured a you know what, what what kind of commercials do they mainly have on the Super Bowl? Bud Light beer, right? And so there was called the Bud Light Hawk, and and there's a guy who had, this, this hawk would bring him, uh, when he said, you know, said some word like beer or whatever, the, the hawk would bring him a beer. And he's showing off to his friends, and one of his friends says, but where do they get it? And then it flashes to an outdoor restaurant setting, like in the city, and the hawk swooping down and everyone hiding under the tables, you know, to, to you know, as the hawk was stealing the beer from their tables. Like, was it like that? You know, is that, is that what was going on as the ravens provided for Elijah? I, I don't know, I, I think of such things. So, so how long did this go on? A, a, probably a few months. Um, but eventually, the brook dries up. Why? Because there's no rain. In, a, in other words, this is interesting, Elijah will feel the consequences of his own pronouncement. You know, this pronouncement of no rain would affect those who did not turn away from the Lord. It would affect all the people, good and bad, right? Sometimes you want to say, well, you want to pronounce judgment upon, you know, the, the evildoers, but notice how it fell upon the good and the evil, the same. So maybe that's why God sometimes is hesitant to, to, to do this. He knew how these this would feel. So... So Elijah himself began to feel the consequences of God's judgment upon the people. And we'll see where where it goes for next week and how God will then redirect Elijah to a new way. This is kind of the opening situation, right, for what's going on. There's a lot more to the story as we, we get to walk through Elijah's life. Today I want to think about three applications that I think come out of this story so far. And I'm going to introduce them by three different questions. And the first question is this What do we learn about God from how he responds to this situation? So, first, we learn God is not this dispassionate, disinterested scientist who created the world but doesn't care. God is such a God that He He cares. He, he, he has passion to Him and talks about being provoked to anger. So, so God is invested in how people respond to Him. He's not some disinterested scientist, you know, just sort of seeing, oh, that's interesting. No, he he he's he's watching. He's no He's involved. Now, the other critique we hear, almost on the other side, is especially like, non believers will read the Old Testament and say, Well, this God is, he's, he's easily angered. You know, he's angered over these, these petty things because his honor is slighted in some way. And, and, and that's not it either. God is not angry because his honor was slighted. In fact, a better picture of what, what God is like in this thing is that of a spurned lover. He sees his people slipping away from them. One of our Sunday school classes is doing the book of Hosea, and that's exactly the image that that prophet later gives of God, is in Hosea's time, um, Hosea is commanded to take back an unfaithful wife. And God says, that's exactly what you've been like to me. Even though you've been unfaithful, I'm not giving up on you. Here we see God is passionately um, caring for his people of Israel. And he's not willing to, to, you know, well, I guess they're going to choose otherwise. Oh, well. No, he is going to pursue them and seek to bring them back through Elijah. The drought was not a punishment, but a way to get their attention. That same God, has looked upon all humanity and saw that all had gone astray. Each had turned to his own way and he was not willing to give up on us either. He came and pursued us through his one and only son. And so that Jesus could provide a way of salvation for all who would put their faith in him a way back into this relationship with God. So even in this, we see echoes of the, the God and Father who would send his Son in pursuit of lost humanity. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man has come. I have come that I might seek and save the lost. Second question I want to throw out for application is why was the Lord so against worshiping other gods when other nations did the same? You know, why, why was this such a big deal? Why not just say, well, okay, you can worship that Baal every so often. Just make sure my temple is bigger than his temple. Now, why, why, why was God concerned about this? And there's three aspects to worship that I think are, are key. One is allegiance, right? Worship is about allegiance. Who's, who's your God? When we come and worship, we are declaring ourselves, we... We are Jesus' people. He is our God. And we, we can worship no other because we are, we are His. He is first most in our life. What you worship shows who your allegiance is to, who your loyalty is to. They had made a covenant with God. And to worship other gods was to break that covenant. The second issue with worship is proclamation. When we worship, we are declaring something to the world. That's one reason why our worship is open to visitors, to those who would come, right? This is not secret. We are declaring ourselves publicly, proclaiming who Jesus is. And by Israel beginning to worship other gods, it was, it was getting in the way of God's plan to, to, to use them to share his message to all the nations. And so God was passionately about, they, they were meant to be the light for the Gentiles, And if they started worshiping other gods, they would no longer be that light. And the third aspect of worship, and that's true of us today as believers, you know, we are now the light of the world as we worship Jesus Christ, a a lampstand placed in our community. And so it's vital we stay faithful in our worship to, to the Lord Jesus and him alone. And then the third part of worship is formation. What you worship shapes who you are the things you focus upon to think about, the things you give your heart and mind and, and attention to, begin to, to shape your inner being. The more we give ourselves to praising God, honoring Him, having grateful hearts, we, we're, we're drawn to be more like Him. Right? The more we look at Jesus, the more slowly we become shaped into His image. And so we, we set aside for an hour plus a little, right? We, we, we stop looking at our phones. We stop, we turn off the TVs, unless we're live streaming at home, right? But, but you know, we, we, we get rid of the technology that everything else that, that wants our attention in this world, we shut all that out, and for at least an hour or so on a Sunday morning, we give our heart's attention to Him and Him alone through our singing, through engaging with His Word. That is begins to shape us, form us in a certain way. What you worship shapes who you are. And God knew if they began to worship the Canaanite God Baal, they, begin, they would begin to act like the Canaanites. The third question we think about an application is this. How does the time by the brook prepare Elijah for what he will soon face. So I don't think the only reason God sent Elijah to that brook was to protect him from, from Ahab's wrath. I think there was a second reason. I think there was a reason God provided for him through those birds bringing bread and meat every day. I think he was training Elijah to trust in him. Right? I mean, think about what you would... I mean, he had time to pray and think about his life and what you know his, you know all the things that were going on and and he would begin to see how god provided i believe god was spiritually preparing elijah for an incredibly difficult battle that he would go against he was learning to rely on god and god alone that it would not matter if everyone else was against him and it was just him and god cuz that's exactly what would it be for elijah he would trust in god alone and that god was trustworthy Likewise, how might the Lord be preparing us to stay faithful amongst the challenges to our faith? We are called to enter into spiritual training. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ in the world, if you are going to stand strong and walk in faith when so many others are walking the other way, you, are ne- you will need to be trained for battle By the Lord, right? We all recognize the need for physical training, right? We run, exercise, you know, diet, whatever. It says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, physical training is of some value, but godliness, meaning spiritual training, has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. We're called to enter into spiritual training. We need, like Elijah, we need time alone with God. We need time to think about him, to, to pray, to, to engage his word, to, to, to be alone with God. Are you setting time to be alone with God on a regular basis? Not just corporate worship, which is great. That's part of that training too. But, but personal devotional time. I challenge you if, you, if you don't do that now, begin giving God 15 to 20 minutes at least every day and say, God, I want to seek you this morning. Read a passage, and just allow God to start to speak to you. Make that a focus. We need spiritual training in our lives. We need to present him our life. We need to learn to trust him in difficult situations. We need to learn that he provides. We need to learn to pray, because not just... So that we can lift up this list of prayer requests, but we need to learn to pray because when things are going wrong, who do we turn to? We need to learn that God is reliable and we can bring Him to Him everything. And not that He always answers right away immediately in everything we ask, but that we find that we find our answer in Him as we walk with Him. Have you been, been being spiritually trained? Sometimes we call that being discipled. Right? You want to be a disciple? It says, it says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of in his might. Or, or the call to stand strong in difficult situations. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Maybe if you're a newer Christian, younger Christian, or if you've just never done this, maybe you need to partner with an, an older Christian, someone who is grown as a disciple, and and start meeting with them and, and have them help guide you on how to follow Jesus so that you can follow him for a lifetime. One last verse. It says, therefore, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. So as you receive Christ Jesus, continue to walk with him and get rooted so that you could walk with him no matter what we face in our culture and times. Let me pray. God and Father, I thank you for the example of Elijah and and how he stood strong and faithful to you, even when his culture was going the wrong way. Lord, and and we just pray for our own selves, this congregation, when we see things in our culture that, that concern us and we have worries and fears, Lord, May we learn how to stand true to you no matter what this world hits us with. May we learn to stay faithful to you even if if we see others go in the other direction. Lord, give us strength and show us how. In Jesus' name, amen.